0: Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard.
1: Our guest today spent the last eight years as a corporate sales coach and 30 years in various leadership roles. He was a priceless contributor to The Backstep, the book we just released. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Labasio. Bob, how are we doing? Great. Good morning, everyone. If you just want to go through kind of what the corporate sales coach thing does, kind of how you go out to different companies, things like that, just kind of give us a background.
2: Yeah, so I'm often asked, what do you do? Um, And we have a consulting practice. The name of the company is Corporate Sales Coaches. Uh, we specialize in working with teams that are trying to improve performance. So like it says, corporate sales coaches, we do have a, a pretty strong lineup with sales. But uh, we also work with the dynamics between the management side of the business and people who are in the field. So I think it relates directly to uh, your profession. And that dynamic between management and uh, frontline players is uh, are very interesting. So that's what we do.
1: I think that you have seen more good and bad bosses than anybody. And the reason we really wanted to have you on the show is because we often get questions about how people should deal with leadership, but we're just we're just firefighters. You have actual like training in this. So we wanted to bring you on because in my eyes, even though we work in public safety, a boss is still a boss and a subordinate is still a subordinate. So when you've kind of through your travels, what do you see as like the common trends of the good bosses, bad bosses, and in turn, like good subordinates and bad subordinates?
2: Yes, I think everyone likes uh, personal stories, and I have a personal story to share with you. I was a bad boss. I evolved into what I think is probably a good boss. So uh, in the corporate world, I've had as many as 38 offices, 700 people around the world. And um, a few years back, I've got a trophy and I got a, an award for the number one boss within this company. The year before that, I actually got a reality check from one of the people who worked for me. Uh, cause I was a driver. I was somebody who was very, very focused, very driven, a very intense command and control boss. And I've got a group of people that I inherited in New York. It was F troop for those of you who remember that story or that, that show. Uh, they were last out of 37 divisions, and in three years, we made them first. And in that transition, I whipped some people pretty hard. They had one guy tell me, took me aside, and with literally tears in his eyes said, I wouldn't treat a dog the way you treat me. So what, what is your point? What are you trying to accomplish? The next year, I won the manager of the year. So I actually had a, one of those aha moments about the way you treat people. I know good bosses, I know bad bosses, and, uh, and, and the difference, quite frankly, is not necessarily them individually, but how you perceive them and how you interact with them. So I've worked for good bosses where I had a great relationship, and earlier in my career I had some people that I considered to be bad bosses, uh, and now looking back on it, I'm not sure whether they were the bad boss or I was the bad employee.
1: Hmm. It, it seems like you took this this group from underachieving to overachieving through a hard hand do you think that you could have been as successful with having like a different tactic with having a more of like a soft approach or do you think that it's it's crucial to have that hard line if you want results
2: so i'm a great great believer in um in in your book backstep you cited materials from carol wassillitian and in her book, she talks about a remarkable leader, a perilous leader, and a toxic leader. And I believe that in the beginning of my career, I was probably perilous at best and maybe even a little bit of toxic. You know, I really, really whip people pretty hard. Uh, the difference between those three styles, for those who want to get the book or you know, want, to, want to read the sections in Backstep, Toxic leader, no one wants to work for. No one, no one wants to be around that person. They are derogatory. They attack you personally. They play head games. The perilous boss is interesting because they do what a lot of successful leaders do. They stack rank people, and they, they pit one against the other. So, well, if you could be better like Tom or you could be better like Craig, you could be better, and you end up with some competition that kind of works. And that's probably what I did more often than not when I was building that team. Uh, But if you're gonna stay at that level as a manager, you're gonna rip through people. You're gonna have a lot of turnover, you're gonna have a lot of people who are frustrated. The definition of the remarkable boss is the one who actually develops a personal relationship. Uh, Craig, I know your early stage career with um, fire department down in Colorado Springs, you had a boss that actually created a personal relationship with you. He understood you, you understood him, And that's the type of boss that you'll climb through the gates of hell for. The other types of bosses, you know, they they want to try to motivate you, but in some cases they're demotivating you. So in answer to your question, I think if I had learned earlier on how to be more of a remarkable boss, develop relationships with people, give them some space, really give them a chance to respond, I probably could have done that turnaround better, faster, a little bit less stress.
1: I know some officers who feel like, and maybe this was like an an older school method of, I don't wanna get too close to my guys in case I gotta write them up or I gotta discipline them. I want to distance myself and I'm gonna hang out in my room because I don't want to, you know, be seen fraternizing with the help. Like, where do you think that came from? Do you think that's a good way to go about doing things? Is that, you know, can people be successful like that?
2: Well, success is measured uh, any number of ways. Inside corporate America, success is measured by results. And there are some really hard-driven, really push, you know, disciplined, what we call command and control management. And that can be successful. And success for those people, even though they might not be your favorite person to work for, um, if they get results, you know, they, they can get high marks and they actually can be successful. The other thing I'd like to, to sort of bring up is the, the difference in styles. And we've talked about this uh, in, in creating the book, but there are different styles. There's a driven style, a dominant style. There is an influential style. There's a steadiness, and there's a conscientious style, thus the, the acronym DISC. So the boss can be successful, or the employee or the firefighter can be successful, no matter what style they have. The key is adapting, understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, and then adapting to people around you. So to answer your question, bosses who have a command and control style might be because that's who they are. That's in their DNA, that's the way they're built. And they're only gonna get so far away from that in terms of their repertoire. Uh, I think based on the knowledge that I have of the firefighter profession, it's common practice for leadership to have a strict discipline and really work very, very hard to make sure that there's strict discipline and more of a command and control uh, type of an aspect. So it really becomes a question of how you respond to that. And then you've got your own style. You might fill into one of these practices. But to answer your question, what makes a good boss or a bad boss, how you perceive and how you respond and how you react and what accountability you take for that relationship, not necessarily what they are or what their DNA is. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, like Tom and I might have Tom's my boss might have different like disc profiles. So he might be a D. What did you say? D was dominant. Yeah,
2: dominant style. Yes. Okay.
1: So I think that you have more of a dominant style, and I uh, and I've done that. Your your disc profile. I think I was a. Uh, an SI? Yep, you're
2: a, you're a steadiness style. Just
1: because we're different styles doesn't mean we can't work together. He needs to know what kind of style I am to appreciate where I'm coming from, and I need to know what kind of style he is to appreciate where he's coming from instead of, oh, he's he's just an ass, or Tom be like, oh, well, Craig's just soft. You know, like having that realization is the, the key to that successful team.
2: Yeah, so – the, the point I was making earlier is I, I think you want to, wherever your role is within the fire profession, is you want to look in the mirror and say, who's responsible for the relationship? And that's really key. So mm-hmm. your style and your boss's style, your leader's style is going to come and go. There's going to be differences in the way they perceive their role, you perceive your role. But the thing that I learned early on is you want to make sure that you are taking responsibility and accountability for the relationship. And in some cases, that's a very hard thing to do when you're being pushed and, you know, you've got, a, you've got a difficult job. Is that relationship with the boss is something that you should have more than a 50% responsibility for? And then DISC, without getting it all complicated and trying to, you know, give you the Ph.D. in 10 minutes here, DISC explains why some people get along better with others out of the shoot than, uh, than others do. And the more you know about yourself, the more you know about your strengths, your limitations, and then you adapt that to your boss or your, your colleagues, quite frankly. And there's nothing that prevents you from using this in your personal life as well. It helps you adapt and it helps you get into a much more collegial relationship with, with these folks. But the one thing that I also learned early on is you are responsible for that relationship with your superiors, and you need to understand where they're coming from, what's in it for them, what role you need to make. That, I think, will help create a little bit less conflict.
0: So to simplify it a little bit for me, I like things as simple as they can get sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that really a successful boss or even a successful subordinate largely depends on their ability to adapt to all different styles, right? Yes. All right. So would you say that some of the most successful teams you've been around have had both subordinates and superiors that adapt to each other, right?
2: Yeah. Some of the most successful teams, and again, this is, I don't want to make this too complicated, but successful teams are teams that have different styles and they mesh, They learn to complement one another. You look at your team, you're going to have some really hard-baked, hard-scrabble, driven people. Other people are going to be less confrontational, less assertive, but they're no less valuable on that team. And when you get those teams to mesh, and that's one of the things that managers or leaders or bosses should do, is get those teams to mesh, complement one another, look out. I mean, it lights out in terms of your performance levels. So it's up to the manager to make sure that you can identify styles and get those teams to mesh. You really attribute value to each of those styles. It's also important for the subordinate, the firefighter, to understand where their counterparts or their colleagues are coming from. Uh, You're under tremendous pressure. It's a high stress situation. And quite frankly, under stress, these tendencies come out in a more pronounced fashion. So if you're a real hard ass, under pressure, you're going to be a bigger hard ass. If you're going to be non-confrontational and you're going to be thoughtful, you're going to be analytical, under pressure, those kinds of attributes come out. And again, as a leader, if you can get people to complement one another, you have a great team.
0: Craig, going back to what you talked about earlier, you said some officers don't want to get close to their crew because they Fear that it's going to make it tougher when it's time to discipline or they have to write them up or hold them to a standard. I'd be interested to hear what both of you think because I see that in my position currently. You know, I've always seen that as a cop out. I've always seen that as an officer saying, Well, I don't really want to make it tough on myself. I want to make it easy on myself. I don't want to get to know them so then I don't have to have feelings involved. I don't have to have a relationship with this guy that that's going to be jeopardized by it. But in my opinion, it's like, well, if you have a relationship with your subordinates or the people who work for you, people on your team, whether you're a coach, whether you're a parent, whether you're an officer in the fire service, if you've got a relationship, you're developing that relationship on a daily basis. There's probably less likelihood that you're going to have to write them up because You're having conversations about what's acceptable, what's not. You're leading the way. You're showing the example. That's what I've found, you know, is that by developing those relationships, those situations where people say, I don't want to get close to a guy, you know, because if I have to write him up, I just haven't had to have those because the relationship takes care of that, right? That that we don't go down that path because everybody knows the expectation and we're just doing what we're supposed to do. What do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think the benefit of getting close to your crew is like your crew doesn't want to disappoint you, right? Like they will go the extra mile because you don't want to ruin that relationship. And I've actually seen this play out. We were in the rig and this was a department I was working for, um, a while ago, but the driver refused to basically like fulfill an order of the officer. He deemed this thing unsafe and there was like a huge blow up at the station because this was a new officer that came into the station and the driver, I think, was trying to like hold his ground a little bit like, hey, I've been here longer than you have kind of thing. And what ended up happening was the crew itself came to this driver and kind of took care of it for the officer and was like, hey, man, we, we think that you're screwing up and you know like let's let's just you know kind of hug it out and move forward but it's almost like if you can create that crew cohesion through like spending time together and training together and creating that trust like the blue shirts might even take care of that for you
0: you're not af- then you're not afraid to hold each other accountable or have those tough conversations within your own circle right
1: yeah it creates like this environment of trust and not this Uh, authoritarian, you know, kind of rule where, you know, your officer is not around. So then it becomes like this us versus them type situation, which I've had too, which is like not, not good.
0: Yeah. And I was listening to you, Bob, talk about like what makes a successful leader and some of the things they do with their subordinates. Obviously, the big thing was they develop a relationship with them. And the first word that popped into my mind, which you just mentioned, Craig, was, was trust because I think a trust goes a long way in a relationship, right? So especially for us in the fire service, it's the trust that if I ask him to do something, he'll do it. He'll do it on the fire ground. He'll do it in the station, whatever. But you know, in a lot of your line of work sales, it's like the trust that they can, whatever they're selling, whatever their like line of work is or their product is, is like you do it your way. You know, that trust of, I trust that you'll get the results, you pick your way, how you want to do it, and I'll back you up any way I can. I think that's a big part of building a relationship. The first part is trusting them. And they know you trust them.
2: Yeah, your profession is not unusual or unique in terms of these these conflicts and these dynamics. Uh, in the businesses that we work with, which are big businesses, you end up with fiefdoms, <clears throat> excuse me, fiefdoms, you end up with Engineering departments, you get in to, to people who are on the front line doing installs. You have people on the back line who are doing the purchasing. You have ownership, and then you have salespeople. In the toxic situations that you find in those worlds, they hate each other. They're laying for each other, and you have all sorts of conflict. Uh, so it's not unusual that you have these kinds of hard feelings and demarks that, that set up in, in business as well as within the profession. You said something earlier about uh, what is it that a, a manager or a leader can do if they don't want to get too close to their team because they may need to write them up, they may need to discipline, they might need to run them off. I, I look at that, and you called it a cop-out. I think it's a self-limiting or a limiting factor. That's you, you don't have the ability to really draw out the best in people under stress and under really difficult circumstances if everything is based on command and control and you will do what I say simply because I'm the, I'm the boss. I think it's self-limiting, quite frankly. Your team will never get better unless you can draw out true commitment from people. One other concept that you know, popped into my head that I just want to share with you is the concept of something called a strength overused becomes a weakness.
1: Can you give an example of that?
2: So if you are a really driven, dominant personality, a dominant style, this D style, if all you do is just drive, 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 that is a strength. But now there are four other styles of people that may be on your team that you may interact with. And they're turned off by that, quite frankly. It's demotivational. So your style overused can become a weakness. If you have a technical ability, if you have a, 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 just a phenomenal ability, either as someone who is a finely tuned athlete you know, you may rely on that, but any strength, think about it, any strength, your technical knowledge, your knowledge of the profession, your knowledge of people, if you try to overuse that strength, it can, can become a weakness.
1: It seems like this isn't just for work. I mean, our relationships with our wives and our kids and, you know, it seems like these lessons can be brought into like all your facets of, of your life.
2: Uh, absolutely. And one of the, one of the things that I enjoy about what I do is when I deal with either senior leaders or I deal with people in the front line, after they get the idea, okay, now I need to look at myself, my strengths, weaknesses, and I need to interact with others or adapt, the side comments, so this explains why my teenage son and I just are at absolute odds with one another. Everything I've been trying to do, drive, push, is, is met with resistance and it's fun. There's a breakthrough when you actually talk about the way you, you interact with people based on getting to know them and then understand their style, respect their style and find ways to work together. Believe me, it works well in a personal life as well as your professional life.
1: Can you talk about the 360 evaluations? Like, Because Tom used, the only time I've ever heard of this was when Tom did it and then I told you about it. And then you're like, oh yeah, we, we do that kind of all the time. So could you talk like maybe if there's some officers out there who are looking how they can kind of up their game, talk about some of the successes that you've had with that.
2: Yeah. So 360 is a, is a common practice. Um, I wouldn't say it's common. I'd say it's well known, but there are companies and organizations Mm -hmm. that, that live and die with this. So the idea of 360 is you evaluate yourself. You rate yourself on a series of questions And you get a scoring system. It might be on your technical competence. It might be on your interactions with your staff. It might be in the way you effectively do your job. You evaluate yourself across a series of criteria. And then you have your superior rate you on the same issues. And then you have people that are either your peers, your colleagues, or maybe people that are subordinates rate you. And there's three outcomes that are kind of interesting. If you draw the line and the line is identical, so you see your capabilities the same way your colleagues, your superior sees you, that's probably the best circumstance. In some cases, you see a gap. You see a gap where you think you're much better. You've rated yourself consistently across these different criteria than your peers or your superior. That's a problem. So you think you're better than everyone else around you thinks you are. The better scenario uh, of the three is where you have rated yourself lower. You show some humility. You've got the ability to do your job, but you have a, a sense that you always want to improve. And so the gap is a favorable gap where you rate yourself lower than your boss or your peers. And that's a fun conversation to have. You know, Maybe you're just tough on yourself, tough rater, but you're constantly looking to improve. Uh, the one that we have the most difficulty with, with uh, corporate America is when you get these real high-minded, strong-willed individuals who think they walk on water, but everybody else around them knows what their deficiencies and their warts are. That can be a tough conversation.
0: Yeah, you, you think you're leading, uh, but then you turn around nobody's following. So like that one quote that we put in the book from John Maxwell is like, you're only taking a walk. You know. So uh, when I was out of training, I had a training chief that did that, and I thought it was a great idea. You know, Why not be evaluated and why not know what uh, the people who work for you actually think of you and I think it takes the edge off. It helps build that relationship more. So I try to do that, but it's interesting to, I don't know, Craig, I mean, I guess my question then to you is like, when you get that email or you get that message saying, Hey, like your boss wants to know what you think about how they're doing their job. To me, when I got it, I thought it just created a little bit more buy-in, Uh, for me, for that particular individual, because they valued, you know, what I thought. And then they actually took those changes and, you know, implemented some of them. That's the
1: key part, though, right? So if you if I tell you that, hey, this is something that I feel is kind of a blind side, or this is what I think could be improved, you have, in my eyes, two options. One, you actually change them or two, you come to me and tell me why this should make more sense to me. Right? Like, this is the method behind this because clearly, like, that has not come across. But then, if you do neither, well, then now what are we doing? Like,
0: yeah, we're just checking a box. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then,
1: and then I'm going to lose even more buy in from you. But what I see is people will get these emails and they don't do anything with them out of either uh, like fear that, you know, that they're going to have to have an uncomfortable conversation and they're not used to that. Uh, or it takes time to like truly honestly evaluate somebody and that takes a lot of calories. And I think some people just be like, no, everything's good. My paycheck comes every two weeks. Like I don't need to, like, I don't want to improve this. And I think that's like a missed opportunity to like, create a better environment.
2: It's, it's a great concept. And it, if you think about it, every one of us has something in our mind that we're carrying around with us day after day, either with our fellow workers, with our boss, something you're carrying around, I wish they wouldn't do this or I wish they would do more of that. And what's really powerful about this is the gift that keeps giving, is imagine your colleagues or your boss coming to you and saying, geez, I've seen where this is an issue. I saw your responses. I would like to get this improved. I'd like to have this. So A, you don't have to carry this around anymore. And B, it becomes a topic of conversation. And you go back and you check in with it periodically to see whether or not there's improvements made. So it's a very powerful concept. And um, I've seen some some really extensive management taking down a peg and get better with their teams as a result of this.
1: I know that when, gosh, maybe like five or six years ago, there was this like, oh, the millennials are the worst. Like they're the worst new like wave of employees and everyone's having a hard time with them. And I feel like this next wave of the Gen Z, when they come into the workforce, it's going to be, ah, they don't care about anything. They want to just be on their phones all day. And it seems like every generation complains about the next one coming up. Is there something that a manager or an officer could do to make that transition of all these newer styles Or maybe they're not new. Maybe they're just recycled from, you know, everyone just thinks their generation is the best or or whatnot that you see like good officers or good managers do to kind of incorporate that next generation. Because I know in our, in our job, everyone's like, oh, those new guys are lazy. They don't do anything. But it seems like that's just the same, same story that people said about us.
2: Yeah. There's a saying, if you don't pay attention to history, it's bound to repeat itself generations and different different groups have uh, different tendencies I and mean, if you think about how much your life has changed just in the in the course of your life with technology and the way you use it uh, it's only going to increase more rapidly let me go back to the concept if I if I take the time to ask somebody what's important to them what's a better way for us to work together what's a better way for us to deal with stress of the job some of the tendencies of the the millennials, some of the tendencies of the Gen Zs will, will come out in the conversation. I think it's a sidebar, quite frankly. You're really getting into what's important to that individual and have that conversation. Uh, I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference in that tenant or that concept, whether you're dealing with Generation A, B, or C. Let me find out what's important to you, how you need to work. One other concept that we utilize in our management training Uh, And this is simple. This is a dirt simple kind of an exercise is you sit down with your team and you write down as a manager, as a boss, you write down, here's what I expect of you. And then you try to go through an exercise where you as the boss write down what is expected, what, what the team is expecting from you. And I find that management gets writer's cramp. They can write down what they want their team to do and they can go on to the extra page. But when they start writing down what the team is expecting of them, they get stuck. And that is an opportunity to talk to the team, fill in those blanks, find out what the team is expecting from the manager. It's a great exercise to have once every six months, maybe even once a quarter.
0: Sometimes I think it could surprise you. You get that feedback where you're like, oh, well, maybe a lot of this other stuff I'm doing is just a complete waste of time. And (laughs) it's like it's taken a lot of my mental you know, anguish or whatever, any, you know, this time commitment, whatever we got to do every day. And these guys don't even really value it. They value this over here. And that's a lot simpler for me. You know, I, I, I agree with that. I, I've had that happen one time where it's like, all right, well, yeah, then I'll just stop doing that because I didn't really like to do it anyways.
2: And, and some of the things we've been talking about are what the team is going to expect. Be honest with me. Be straight with me. Let me know when I'm screwing up. Let me know when I've done a good job. These things are not that complicated. It's it's what drives human beings to satisfaction levels and a higher performance.
1: I had one officer do that who sat me down at the, and she would do this at the beginning of every shift. And she would basically slide over this piece of paper front and back of her expectations. And it was when you can change out of your uniform, what happens when the doorbell rings, like everything that is expected of you. And some people thought it was ridiculous and stupid and i kind of liked it because you you knew the game
0: like you knew they stick to it right because a lot of times oh they did no but But, i mean a lot of times you'll have this here's my expectation sheet and that's where it becomes complicated and then it doesn't even match up with that right then you then you go through day by day and week by week pass and you're like no this really matches up so then you're in a bad spot but
1: because you have two sheets of music now you're supposed to read off
0: of oh this wasn't on here this wasn't on this piece of paper but they're expecting me of this. So I'm not aware you know, that's, yeah. that's the thing is like, I feel like if that is something where you're going to put each bullet point on paper and like, these are all my expectations, that's tough because th- to me, you don't leave any gray area. And I think there's a lot of gray area in leadership. You know, there's a lot of that like uncomfortable conversations of we haven't really navigated this yet, but we're going to get through it together. You know that you can't really put that on paper. You know, that's very true.
1: I mean, I'm not saying there was a, a phenomenal technique for everybody. But when you're roved in there for the day, it was kind of nice to like kind of know the, Hey, all right, let me check my sheet of paper and see when I can throw my shorts on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We, in the, in the book Backstep that's out, we talk about three different styles of leaders and it's kind of based off of, it's really based off of the book behind the uh, executive door and our three leaders that we pointed out were the old salt, which kind of get broken down into two different sections, the insecure and the toxic. You have had one of the most toxic experiences I've ever really heard of. I know that that's obviously the hardest one of those leaders to be able to show up to work every single day. And in our job, uh, we're roommates with them. There is no, hey, we're going to we're going to get out of here at five o'clock and then I get to at least go home and and get with my family. It's, I got to sit and eat dinner with this person and clean their plate. And you know, it it, it can really wear on you mentally. Can you kind of talk about how you get through, first of all, how to identify someone like that and then how to get through that experience?
2: Yeah. So one of the books I didn't share with you or, or suggest that you source is one that uh, I bought uh, when I was going through this. I worked Come through corporate America, been very successful, and I was enticed to join a family business, husband and wife team. The idea was I would help them grow the business exponentially and then get a piece of the action. Turned out to be a horror show. So I was pretty good at management, had come through all the corporate stuff, and now I got myself into a tough situation where every day I was in a a crossfire between a husband and wife team. Uh, It became derogatory. It became personal. Uh, there was a lot of mind games, and what I tried to do at the time was what most people do is you just work harder, get the results to where you need them to be, but this, this got, got pretty tough. So I went out and bought a book called Tangling with Tyrants, <laughs> and, and really what it amounts to is you've got choices. Uh, you as an individual have choices. So you either decide to stay and fight through it, or you start to write up your exit strategy. Uh, If it's that bad, and I'm talking about toxic where they are personal, they're making personal attacks, it just is unrelenting. So I don't know how many of you find yourself in that situation, but it's not enjoyable, it's not fun, and it's more a survival mechanism. I found that what I would do is I would just uh, put my head down, work harder, get the results there, and I took a lot of satisfaction in working with my teams. My teams were remarkable. They did a great job. And as a middle manager, I found it great and satisfying. So I, I actually put up with uh, the husband and wife team for too long a period of time. And then when I finally got to the point where the survivor uh, mode was going away and I had my exit strategy, it was like someone took a weight off my shoulders. My exit strategy was going to take me a year. And I knew at the end of the year, this would be over. But nobody wants to go through that. And there's not a real magic bullet with this one. You need to survive. The only other option, really, I think, is to see if you can get inside their head and find out what makes them tick. That can be scary. But you can find that there is some common ground. What's in it for them? What are they really trying to accomplish? If you can focus on that, that can get you through the day-to-day. And I think in your situation, focusing on what the senior leadership wants what will make them look good as opposed to fighting it, battling it? I, I think that can be that can be helpful, but not an easy situation.
0: Yeah, I'm really intrigued by that because I, I hadn't heard of this book, but immediately thought of our experience, uh, you know the inner circle of our of the guys we train with, you know the last couple of years, each one of us, you know there's probably five or six of us had to decide stay or go. Some stayed, some went. What do you think makes people – well, this two-part question. Why do some people stay instead of go? I mean, you touched on a little bit, but, like, what are some reasons why people stay instead of go? And then at what point do the people that stay say – you know, like, they draw, they draw this line in the sand and say, I'm not going to really, like, focus on other things. I'm going to stand up and fight. Like, it's, it's on. When does that happen? Is it healthy? Is it the right thing to do? If, if you're at that point where you're like, I'm, I'm all in, this is war, is it just better to, to go? Like, is it, is it even worth it?
2: Yeah, I think it totally depends on the individual. Uh, in, in the acronym, I'm a, I'm a DI, I'm a dominant influential style. So I've been competitive, successful my whole life. And I decided that I was going to battle through this. I'd been through many, many tough managers, very, very demanding managers through my corporate days. So I wasn't unfamiliar with the process. This, I thought, was just another incident like that, just another episode of that. And I wasn't going to back down. I was going to show through results. And the more I fought it, the more they they hunkered down and, and, and made my life miserable. So I actually flipped from I'm going to show them that this is going to work to i got to get out of here. Now, I don't want to make everything all about these DISC styles, but other styles are not confrontational. They internalize everything, and they almost become the victim in this process. So it really depends on you. You need to look in the mirror and decide what's in it for you. Is it really worth it? And Really what it comes down to, is it worth it for me and my family to deal with this situation because it can become exhausting and and, and hurt you mentally? That is a fact.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, does it come back? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Like what is gonna happen? In your example, right? It was your the bosses own the company. In our situation, they're just an employee. You know, so it's it's like you were fighting an unwinnable battle because they owned the company that you worked for, as opposed to us where you know our bosses are just someone else's employee. I think at the end of the day, it's like, what can, when you go home, can you be proud to stand in front of your spouse and your kids and be like, I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons. And maybe that is fighting, or maybe it's the best thing for me to do is get out of this situation so I can come home and have more mental space to be a dad and a husband or a wife and a mother. You know, I like how you said it was, it was personal to each, each individual, um, there is no like blanket answer, which is why I think some of us left and some of us
2: stayed. Well, I think, and uh, in, in not to oversimplify it, but I think in your jobs, you're saving lives. You're doing things every day that you can take great satisfaction in. So if you can, I guess the technical term is, is bifurcate or if you can split this. Compartmentalize those, that. Compartmentalize. That. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, I was working with a team and the team was performing at a high level, and the team was very respectful and devoted to me. And I took great satisfaction in that team, getting to know them, getting to know their families. I put the two owners aside and said, listen, they're not gonna change, but I'm not gonna let them take over my life and make it miserable. And I got great satisfaction out of the team. In your jobs, in your profession, you're saving lives every day. You can take great satisfaction with how that team performs. And sort of put up with the the unreasonable leader until it becomes untenable. And then you gotta make the decision to stay or leave.
1: I think I see it as and I wish we saved lives every day. It seems like the longer that you do this, the less like change you see. Like it it's more rare. Maybe this is just me, but It's more rare to feel like you're actually making a difference because these calls become, they sometimes feel like mundane, even though it's not right. It's an emergency to someone, but, uh, that like dealing with that toxic leader, it starts to affect how you perform your job and it, it starts to affect how much, I don't know, is caring the right word? You know what I'm trying to say? Like how much caring you bring to each, each patient, each, each call,
2: well, in you know, it's the same in, in healthcare. You can become desensitized to it. I mean yeah. people who've been in the emergency rooms and nurses and seen awful situations just become <laughs> immune to it. So that's a battle that each one of you fight is how do I avoid getting immune to this and make sure that I can keep some perspective on this. Not easy. And then you throw in a boss that's demotivating and you're distracted. But let's flip the script. Now you do this and you become the boss and now you start moving up. Remember, remember these lessons, remember what it was like dealing with the untenable or the difficult boss, and there's there's some future for the profession.
0: You know, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, that. because a lot of the leadership roles I have in my life, and I think it would be true for all of us sitting at this table, is a lot of the things I do are in direct response to things that happen to me, and it's, well, I don't want to be like that I that did not work for me when I was then so I'm going to make sure that I don't use that tactic you know that that's a big part of it is taking lessons from you know lifelong lessons from your process of of becoming an adult or becoming a leader and whatever that's how you become your own leader you know so uh, I think about that every day it's like I don't sometimes bad it's like I don't want to be that guy you know that guy that was 10 years ago that did that to me like I want to make sure I do it a little bit differently because it it didn't work then and I don't want to be labeled like, you know, I don't want to be thought of like I thought of that guy, you know?
2: And what, what I know about the profession is, and what I've seen in a couple of the academies that, that Craig is going through and the, and the progression, everybody comes in with high expectations and a great attitude. You, you have to have that in order to get through that crucible that you get through just to become a firefighter. So you had that at the beginning of your career. Don't forget that. Don't let that go away and let that carry you through some of these challenges and then god willing the creek don't rise you know when you become the boss then the whole the whole profession starts to rise so that's the pollyanna side of this you know in terms of what what's in it for everybody
1: i think i've seen some officers though take the opposite approach and it's like well i got i got shit on as a new person and i can't wait till i'm an officer and then i'm going to you know, do that to the next person. So I think that the effect of, I will create change when I become promoted can work the opposite direction as well, which is unfortunate that not everyone has that. All I want to do is just better than the person before me. Like if I ever promote, I want to do a better job than you did. Right. And not because there's anything but like, I hope that the next person, same thing with like the, the whole backstep thing. Anyone who comes through our station. I want them to end up going out and doing a better job than I'm doing. Of course. Like right. that's, that's create it.
0: More leaders, create more back steps, you know, yeah. whatever, like you're a parent, you want to create better mothers and fathers of the future, you know, like create great adults. Like that's, that's the most rewarding thing about any leadership is seeing people go out and do it better than you did it. I think.
2: Yeah. And for the guy who got to the position and been kicked and, and pushed around and now they want to do the kicking you know, hopefully someone will come up and have the same conversation with him or her that George had with me. I wouldn't treat a dog the way you treat me. What, what, what do you think you're going to get out of this? Hopefully someone will have the moxie to come up and, and talk to a manager or a boss at that point and give him a little bit of a reality check, but it doesn't always happen.
1: Yeah. I think as a, I've just been a subordinate my entire career and I think officers have this, like almost like a, oh, they're untouchable. They didn't get that job because they were a good leader. They got that job because they were, they took a test, they worked hard and spent months studying for this. But they might just need that conversation to totally change them around. Now, obviously, there are better ways to approach that conversation than others, and kicking down their door and calling them an asshole is probably not the way to go. But maybe that's what they need. You know, maybe they need that moment of, man, I can't believe that Bob just came up to me and told me that I was, you know, being an ass. Like, I didn't know that because no one's had the courage to go up and, and
0: tell them that. Yeah, hey, I mean, as a subordinate, though, you got nothing to lose, right? If you do it the right way, it's like this can be a great opportunity for both of us to grow, to like further our relationship, to build trust. Maybe it helps him out, but if if uh, the leader or the boss doesn't take doesn't take it and do anything with it, Hey, you try. You know, you right, tried, right? Like, well, you, you can only do so much.
1: And if it doesn't work out, maybe go back and analyze how you approach that officer, and maybe the next time around you can do it a little bit differently. Or you take the time to figure out what their personality type is like, and hey, I can approach it the way that this person needs it to be approached, as opposed to the way that I want to approach it.
2: So a little bit of a lesson, uh, and again, without trying to in one or two parcels here give you the the, the disc process, but for really hardened high Ds, dominant styles, uh, one of the things that's interesting is to think about why do they do things the way they do? Why are they built that way? What's, What's driving this? So in our classes, we go through and say, what is the biggest fear of the high D, the high I, the S, or the C? The biggest fear of the high D is losing control or the appearance of losing control. So if you think about that, that's one of the things that you don't want to do in your confrontation is try to take over control. You come up the line, you show your backbone, you show your moxie, but don't try to one-up or take control away from the high D. You do so at your own risk. The other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to try to get everybody else on your side. You don't want to walk into that conversation and have four of your buddies there with you That is going 100% against the high D need for being in control or the appearance of being in control. So if you can make it a one-on-one conversation, show your your integrity and show your moxie, but don't go across that line and don't try to gang up on the high D, that would be my tip of the day. That's not one of the things that that works well with these dominant styles.
1: Any one of these styles can be a good officer, good manager, good leader. Absolutely. So... Could we do one more? I like really enjoyed hearing how you should <laughs> approach the, the ID. Um, I'm trying to think of like what would be the opposite of the D.
2: So if, if you look at the quadrants or you look at the circumplex, the D is in the upper left-hand corner. The influence style is next to it. Uh, the D is results-oriented, driven. Let's take that hill. Just do it. The I style is more humanistic more relationship i really want to know who i'm working with and know what their their relationships are all about you take the time to get to know them their family the opposite quadrant craig is the steadiness style and in society there are more s styles than any other so there are 26 27 percent of us walking around the world who are s styles these are the people that get the job done day after day non-confrontational keep their head down not easy to read. They're a little bit more guarded, but their biggest fear is that don't rock my world. It's changed. They don't like change. They don't like to have things imposed on them. So you think about the dominant style that has results. Let's make it. We're going to jump off this cliff. We'll build our wings on the way down. That's the exact opposite motivation for the S that says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm not really into making a bunch of changes for the sake of change. So these, these styles do in many respects, explain why people get along, don't get along, and why there's that tension between the various styles.
1: That's awesome. I know you got to go. We're going to go through a, uh, a few listeners wrote in with some issues that they were having at their station and I figure I'm just going to read them off and just get your take on how they should should proceed. So we have a crew of motivated firefighters who worked hard to earn a reputation around the fire department as go-getters. We recently have gotten an officer who's newly promoted and is policy-driven. The officer frequently puts all of his efforts on tasks that have little to nothing to do with emergency operations. For example, he doesn't put any emphasis on training when his crew tries to show some initiative and shuts them down by saying they are too busy to train. How do you think they should go about, you know, so crew of people who have, you know, built this trust and built this good reputation of hard chargers, then it seems like they have a a new officer that comes in and tries to change that culture.
2: So a couple things that come to mind is, and this is a question you want to ask yourself, you know, is everyone motivated? Uh, We do this in our classes as well. Normally half the room raises their hand and said, yes, everyone is motivated. Half the room raises their hand and said no everyone is not motivated. And the answer is everyone is motivated, but for their reasons. So you got a mismatch here. So the crew is thinking that the things that would help the department is training. Uh, The new leader has come in and they have other agenda items. They have other things that they want to do. So my recommendation is try to find out what is driving that new leader what their motivation is, what's on their to-do list, what's on their their checklist, and then build the business case. And this may not be easy, but build the business case for how what you're asking the leader to embrace is going to help them. If they want to get better scores for the department, if they want to rise up in terms of uh, the way they're viewed uh, within the fire department, you know, you can build a case for what it is that you're asking for in the way of training will help us get there. If you can bridge that gap, you got a much better chance of reaching this person. And now you've got mutual goals as opposed to going in different directions.
1: So how can I fill your cup, right? By doing what What's I am in it trying for me. to do.
2: Right, right. But okay. again, think about everyone's motivated. I just need to understand what your motivation is so that I can help you get there.
1: And you can't do that with the officer sitting in their room all day. Right. It's got to be a
2: dialogue. Yeah. You know, they had a little exercise about what's expected from you. What do you expect from me? If you can suggest that, that might be a a good way to open up that dialogue.
1: All right. Awesome. Uh, The next one, I'm a newly promoted officer of a crew and I have one member who refuses to participate in any training. They have some pull because they've been on the job for a while and they have a good reputation. How can I turn them around?
2: Well, it's probably similar. I, I look at this as the, the difference between the remarkable leader and the perilous leader. Uh, the remarkable leader needs to actually reach an individual on a personal level, get to know them, understand where they're coming from, understand what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do. I had a personal experience with a woman who was incredibly bright, uh, and we just knocked heads. I could never get her to go along with the things that I wanted done. And it wasn't until we sat down face-to-face, had a conversation, and we talked about what she was trying to achieve, where she was trying to go, what she wanted to do, just taking the time to find that out from this person as opposed to just tell them over and over again what you want done. Reach out, have that conversation. Uh, She wrote me on LinkedIn the finest testimonial I've ever gotten, and that is by getting to know me, I found reasons why I wanted to do things for you as a leader, and that had never happened before.
0: I think what I'm finding here is a common denominator in a lot of this, like navigating these, say, problems or circumstances between leaders and subordinates, is having conversations. Bingo. That's, a, that's a huge. <laughs> that's like a huge part of it. Like, hey, let's let's go talk about it. Yeah. You know, and that can be tough for some people. I think after you start having what is perceived in the beginning as difficult conversations, then it becomes easier. You know, as as I've gotten older, the conversations are super easy. It's like I've done this a lot of times before. I would venture to say that almost all, every time I've ever had that difficult conversation, it's turned out really well. That willingness to talk it out. So, you know, have a conversation. That's the big thing. You got a conflict with somebody, have a conversation. A lot can come out of it. And and take Open-minded conversation for sure. And take
2: responsibility for managing up. It's not you're expecting the boss to change. I need to take responsibility for how you view me, how, how, you, how I view you. Take responsibility and accountability for it. That's an important part of this as well.
1: I think we see our job as so much different than like those corporate structures and that we don't need any of this training. We just need to be good at the tactile portions of our job to be a successful team. But what it seems like is that we have a ton to learn about how we can create better teams, not only by the nuts and bolts of what we do, but building these relationships and, and having some more like open conversations. But that might open up some wounds that, you know, you're not ready for. You know, maybe your uh, your slate isn't so clean. And, and, you know, when you go into that conversation, go in with an objective of, hey, let's figure out how we can do this together and then be ready for how can I change and and do better myself. It's not just, hey, my boss is terrible. Well, none of us are coming into this absolutely perfect.
2: We're all human beings. We all have things that we're good at, things that we need to improve upon, but we are all human beings, so a dialogue is not going to hurt